Hello and welcome to the Friday Film Club. On this episode, I'm joined by Stuart Hobley, who is a charity director. He's on the Mayor of London's Culture Board and he's a BAFTA Games judge. So, uh, welcome to the show, Stuart. Hi, nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Um, I'm assuming because of your uh, your glowing uh, resume that you, you know a thing or two about film. Well, uh, not professionally. I, I suppose it's just been something I've been obsessed with for a very long time. I think <laughs> from a very early age, just really fell in love with watching films over and over again. So, yeah. Good. Well, I can't wait to, uh, to have a chat with you and find out what your answers are. But uh, before we go into that, um, tell us a little bit about what exactly it is that you do. So uh, my career has been in grant making. So for a long time, I worked for the National Lottery. And a lot of people obviously think about playing the lotto games and winning loads of millions of pounds and paying off your mortgage, all those kind of things that people want to do. But obviously, a lot of the money that's raised goes to good causes. So for 15 years, I worked for the lottery in terms of how they give the money away to good causes. And it's really interesting because when you say to people that you worked for the lottery, almost always people would say, what are the numbers coming up on Saturday? <laughs> Which sadly, uh, I was never able to give that assurance. Although somebody did once tell me, I'm sure it was someone who worked for Camelot, that there are a group of numbers that people pick statistically less uh, and so if a combination of those numbers come up, you're more likely to win a bigger prize. You're not more likely to win, but you probably would get a bigger prize. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming that anything over 31 is probably picked less often because people go for birthdays. Yeah, it tends to be the numbers, I'm told, that made up the bottom left-hand corner of the grid. Because right. I think you're, people tend to pick birthdays, but then they think, ah, oh, but what if a 50 comes up? So I'll pick, put a few of those in. Yeah. But, the lonely 36 and 37, they just never get picked. Very interesting. So that's that's the uh, top tip. If you're going to pick your own numbers, go for 36 and 37. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, I now I work for an organisation called the Limbury Trust. And again, what we do is we give away grants for a whole range of different types of organisations. Um, and so people apply to us and we take a view on the projects and then we make the grants and we monitor them and we help people to deliver the projects uh, and just generally to make a difference out there in the world. So is there any particular project or, or uh, grant that has kind of stuck with you? Any, any, anything that's of particular uh, significance to you, I guess? Um, there's been some really interesting stuff of late that we funded. Uh, we're, we're funding an organisation down in Bristol called Para Orchestra, and they work with a lot of disabled musicians and dancers and choreographers. And they put on uh, a big event at the end of last summer called Smoosh in Bristol. And it was really this kind of just this amazing kind of dance routine, lo lots of popular music. They paraded through parts of Bristol and it was just a really lovely, joyful thing, a kind of real antidote to us all being locked away in our homes because of COVID. Um, and it just enabled them to really sort of support the dancers, support the choreographers, develop all the kind of uh, production they were gonna do. And it was just something really, really tremendous and effective. You can actually see the film of it on YouTube. It's really, it's just extraordinary. Just seeing people just so happy and doing something as simple as just dancing in the street. Yeah, it was incredible. So we fund a huge range of things. You know, we, we do a lot of work in terms of arts and culture, but we also fund a lot of projects which are about supporting refugees and asylum seekers, as well as homelessness and addressing sort of social issues like that. So it's a, it's a real broad range of work that we do. Yeah, and so on the subject of COVID, have, have you found that uh, the, the, the pandemic and the impact of that has had an effect on the types of charities that are reaching out for grants? 
Yeah, I think lots of organisations have really struggled and so many grant making bodies, whether it's uh, trusts and foundations or the National Lottery or whoever it is, have done some really extraordinary work just to make sure so many organisations are able to survive and just kind of continue. And I think, you know, many organisations have now in this situation where they're slowly starting to kind of consolidate and get things back together. But there's also this kind of expectation that They'll do as well as doing everything in person. They've now been able to develop things online and sort of been able to kind of offer that. And that's, I think, a real um, there's lots of opportunity in that, but it's a real tension as well. And I, you know, it's great that some of us have been able to invite arts and culture into your living room and be able to kind of watch things through your TVs and in person. But not everyone has that opportunity. So I think a lot of organizations have to kind of recalibrate and kind of think about how they move forward from COVID. Um, and I think a lot of it will be about consolidating and really thinking about who are the people they want to work with. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that um, through the show. But let's dive in and uh, see what you've got for some of these questions. So the first one, uh, going in big, what is your favourite film of all time? See, I thought about this a lot. And uh, I am like a lot of people who I think have probably come on your podcast. I think everyone's really tempted to say, oh, here's a big Kubrick film or here's like a, a, a Bergman film or something. But it's none of those things. I, I guess there's two possible answers to this. The first is which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off is <laughs> one of my absolute all time favourite films. I mean, I think if you grew up in the late 80s in Britain, as I did going to comprehensive school, your kind of cultural touchstone was Grange Hill. So kind of watching this exotic world that Ferris Bueller lived in was just amazing. Uh, yeah. And it, it's just such uh, a funny film. And I think every element of it really comes together. Uh, and I know lots of people sort of talk about Ferris as a complete sociopath. And I think that's probably true. I think he is. <laughs> uh, but alarmingly, that kind of makes it more fun in a really weird way so that is absolutely one of my favorite films and there's just so much going on it the 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 school secretary i think she's played by an actress called edie mcclurg uh she's just so funny in every scene she's in and she's always doing something weird in the background just stealing the scene out from everybody and it's just one of those films that whenever i watch it i always pick up something new that i didn't see before Mm. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I haven't seen Ferris Bueller for, for uh, some years now. And I guess that that genre was a little bit before my time. But I, I love that that genre that was kind of defined by um, like John Hughes, you know, stuff like, yeah. you know, The Breakfast Club and, um, and Ferris Bueller was really kind of of that that ilk. Really? And I, but I always remember, uh, I say always remember, I always go back to the, the, the scene. It's like the... Um, Am I right in saying it's like a, a, a carnival or a like parade yeah. and uh, yeah. twist and shout and they do the, the big performance. I love that scene so much. It, it's definitely one of those kind of iconic moments of cinema. Uh, mm. And I think you're right in, in terms of the John Hughes films and all the ones he'd done up, up to before that, many of which were very good. But it's almost sort of like Ferris is when all of the various things he saw, all his tropes kind of come together. Mm in the best way it's like all the others were a slight rehearsal for this film um and for me it just it just comes together beautifully and you know when I watch it now it's kind of his best friend Cameron who's the kind of very sad very lonely guy in this film in in many ways the film's about him uh and it's about his journey and there's again lots of theories about what that means and lots of people sort of say is it a slightly fight clubbish film is Ferris all in Cameron's head is it kind of all of these kind of nuances that you can 
you can overlay on it whether or not that's true i don't know but it, it it's definitely one of my all-time favorite films i mean i used to be able to recite huge chunks of it back in the day but i can't really no, i can't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do i i love that ferris isn't a wholly likable character and there, there, there is a lot of layers to it. You know, it, on, on, at face value, it is a really basic coming-of-age film. But you're right, there's, there's a lot more going on. And with every watch, you do get a bit more out of it. Um, and I, what I really love from Ferris Bueller is that I'm, I'm very much 90s coming-of-age film sort of generation. But when you watch something like Ferris Bueller, you see how that's informed stuff like American Pie so yeah, much. It's just absolutely. the American Pie films are just a bit crapper. Um, but like, but as you say, the tropes are all there, and they use the same formula basically. So yeah, it's I, I love Ferris Bueller. Yeah, great show. Yeah, I mean, it's basically a Spider-Man film as well, but without the superhero stuff. He's basically copy Peter Parker, and the head teacher is the kind of the kind of slightly gone to seed, power mad Green Goblin, and they have this fight all over <laughs> Chicago. I mean, it, it's you know, and it's it's no surprise that I think so many of the Spider-Man films at various points riff off. Um, Ferris Bueller. There's even one of the Spider-Man films. I can't think which one it is. I'm sure it's a Tom Holland one where they they literally recreate the scene where Ferris runs through people's back gardens and jumps across tram uh, trampolines and stuff. I'm pretty sure that's in one of the Spider-Man films. So I think there's there's that real kind of baseline to it, which informs everything that's come after. Yeah, and I think it's one of the like there's references in like say the the Tom Holland Spider-Man films, and I, I think that's probably because the kids that grew up with Ferris Bueller are now the people making films in Hollywood. So you've got this like this cycle where it's all come round. Now those films are being referenced and are really informing the stuff that's coming out today. I think that's it. You know, you get to the point where you, you are that kind of filmmaker and you kind of think, well, I want to recreate that scene from that film that I loved as a kid. Mm. Uh, or I want to make a nice sort of cheeky wink to it at some point during the film that everyone will get or some people will get. And absolutely, how could you not do that? It must be irresistible if you're in that situation to kind of play with that sort of stuff i mean that must be part of the joy absolutely right of course yeah and i guess you know as you say you want to even if no one else gets the reference or, yeah. or picks up on these little kind of easter eggs that you drop in there you do it for yourself so you can you can kind of say ah oh, yeah yeah i did that yeah that's it. it's a bit indulgent it's a bit indulgent yeah. but if you're making a hollywood film i i, I guess you have that freedom <laughs> right well, exactly. I mean, the whole nature, I think, of making a film, uh, it, there's an element of self-indulgence to that. But talking about films that you absolutely don't want to remember, um, what's your least yeah, favourite? Yeah, that's, that's hard, because I kind of quite like a bad film. Uh, there's a lot of fun to be had for watching those really shonky, wobbly, 50 sci-fi horror films, yeah. that kind of mystery science uh, theatre stuff where you sit and watch a film and you just rip it to shreds and you kind of notice all of the kind of failings within it. And nobody really sets out yeah. to make a bad film, but some truly awful films have been made. And I think a lot of them have a huge amount of charm. You know, there's some of them you watch and you just sort of think, God, they really went for it. They really put everything they could into this film. And it's still just genuinely mm -hmm. awful. Uh, so it's quite hard for me to find a film that I genuinely dislike, but I will mention a film I've watched very recently, which I really found hard going, and that is uh, Marvel's Eternals film. Oh, okay. I've I've not seen Eternals yet, but I'm curious as to know why you think it's, that. There's something really quite leaden about it, and a bit morose, and it's really 
strange because most of the Marvel, you know, you think the last 10 years, Marvel have spent a long time building this big arc about this big supervillain called Thanos and all of the terrible things he's going to do and wiping out half of the population and, you know, none of the heroes could defeat him. And then in the first 10 minutes of this film, they're sort of like, oh, yeah, and there's some other bad guys that are even worse. So they just introduce this very quickly and you think, oh, wow, okay, that's that's big. Um, and it's 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 the color scheme in the film is sort of um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the Dulux boredom paint chart, really muted, sort of like moss greens and kind of really kind of dirty blues and a lot of it takes place seemingly at dusk so you know I, I found myself sort of looking at the screen thinking what's going on like you know the old guy from up I'm just like watching this film and being really grumpy about it so it's <laughs> and when you look at the original comic on which it's based it was a really colorful and vibrant comic so it's it's kind of strange that it's translated into this very heavy film I mean there's some great stuff in it, and there's a lot of good sci-fi concept stuff in it but it, it, it's, it doesn't quite work for me, I have to say. Fair enough. So where, where are you generally uh, in terms of Marvel films? Are you, are you pro or con? Oh, yeah, definitely pro. I mean, I think they're a mixed bag and some of them are better than others. And I, it's probably not helpful. Mm. I've not necessarily watched them all in order. So sometimes you watch one and you think they're definitely making reference to something I've not watched yet. <laughs> um, yeah. and I think, but I think what they're very good at is recognising recognizing that i think you know if you're coming to it new i think they they work very hard to make sure it's not impenetrable so that you can just enjoy it as a film uh and that you know all that all the kind of like um the mythology of it you can enjoy and if you're really into it you can enjoy the layers of it and i think again they really seed lots of history and comic book geekery into it so that people really get the stuff and they're very good at connecting it all up without making it feel like you're watching part two of a three-part film. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think some of the Lord of the Rings films really suffered from feeling like you've just watched the filler episode, whereas actually yeah. you kind of wanted to get to the... Yeah, I, I completely agree. The issue I've had, especially in the last year, since Disney Plus has launched, they've suddenly got this platform to start releasing not just films, but loads of series. And they're all part of the canon. And you kind of, if you really want to really want to like uh, absorb that timeline and uh, you, you've got to watch it all and I just I feel like it's been a bit overkill this year and I get to the point where I don't want to watch any of them because I really want to I really want to experience it as it's supposed to be experienced yeah I think it could be quite overwhelming like you say you sort of see the whole sort of pantheon of like films and then there's the tv series oh and then we made some animated stuff as well and then there's mm. the short films they've made it's a bit like I suppose if you're new to it, it's like, where do I, where do I start without mm. kind of getting completely swamped by all of this stuff? And I think the TV shows have been quite hit and miss, actually. I've, I've definitely had mixed things, though I've, WandaVision apparently is very, very good. WandaVision is very good. I think if you're a real student of television, it's a very cleverly crafted essay on kind of sitcom parodies and structures, particularly in American TV over the last kind of, 30 40 50 years and i think they milk that for all it's worth even cleverly putting in adverts that are of the time uh that the sitcoms would have been broadcast so whether it's kind of bewitched or malcolm in the middle you know they're they're really on point with that and i thought that was a very i thought that was a very clever and creative move for them in a way that you often don't see a lot in these kind of big budget kind of franchises to kind of give that flexibility 
I thought was really great. Yeah, yeah and I guess that's a um, perfect example of how the, the Disney machine is now so big that they no longer have to restrict themselves to referencing just Marvel. They can reference so much more because, of course, it includes Fox now as well. We'll all be owned by Disney at some point. <laughs> it's going to come. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you've got to keep you us fed. So I mean, we'll, we'll all be working for Disney in the future, I'm sure. I'm yeah, absolutely convinced. Moving on, uh, which film or TV character do you most relate to, and why? So in my head, I think to myself, oh, I, I really like to be like John Steed from the Avengers, the kind of '60s show which they remade <laughs> as a film in the nineties. You know, yeah, he's calm. Um, you know, he's sort of just charm personified uh, and he solves crimes and drives a cool car i mean who wouldn't want to be that guy i think the reality is i'm probably <laughs> i think the reality is i'm probably more like colombo sort of slightly <laughs> stumbling in wearing something that really should have been ironed <laughs> procrastinating easily distracted so i'm probably a bit more like that or i don't know if you've seen a film called clockwise with john cleese i haven't no uh, he plays a really sort of uptight head teacher who ends up being late for everything. And he's someone that prides himself on being on time for everything and then ends up in a series of increasingly sort of hilarious, unlikely situations that just make him increasingly late for everything he's trying to do. And I, I sometimes feel a lot like that, that I'm always behind the curve. I'm always running late and just getting increasingly irritated. So that's probably the reality. But in my head, it's definitely John Steed, Roller Hat, tweed interesting and i guess while while we're on the subject tell us more about how you got into that whole path of uh, sort of working in the third sector so so how did life take you on that path yeah not directly that's for sure i mean i, <laughs> I went to university and studied product design uh, you know, how, how you learn to design all the products you use around your house, um, which uh, was a course I didn't enjoy and sort of left halfway through because it started off as something I was really interested in. And then halfway through, I thought, I, I, I don't want to be designing kettles and climbing frames as a career. Because quite clearly, I'm going to be no good at it. So, I mean, why would I, why would I want to design bad kettles? I mean, that's a terrible aspiration for me. <laughs> So I ended up just going to art school and I studied illustration and things like animation, which was a lot more my style. And I just kind of accidentally kind of fell into the sector. I had been working for a while for an energy company, you know, like kind of the people that supply your gas and your energy and in like a call center situation, like we've all done that kind of, kind of stuff. And I saw a job advertised working for a charity where they wanted someone who would be a grants officer to kind of help them give away money for volunteer-run projects that take place in hospitals across the UK. And I thought that just sounded really mad. I thought, how could that possibly be a real job? And I applied for it. I just, you know, randomly, I just, oh, I'll apply for this. And so I kind of just went to the interview and told them what I thought. And against all the odds, they offered me the job. And that's where I started. Um, yeah. I'd love to know what I said in that interview because I could use it in other interviews I've had in my life, that's for sure. But I, I got the job and that's, and that's what led me to where I am now. And what do you find is the most rewarding thing about the job you're doing? I mean, you know, getting to spend other people's money is uh, really <laughs> great. Um, but on a, 
on a more on a less superficial level you know some of the organizations are making incredible differences in people's lives some of the organizations we work with are really transforming lives taking people and you know it's a huge range from taking people out of poverty through to supporting people with their educational development just through to kind of making things like museums and art galleries better places to visit more accessible places to visit because all of these things cost money you know and they always cost so much more money than people realize yeah uh, and so having grant bodies like the one i work for and the lottery and lots of others it, it really has transformed the uk to make it somewhere you know where people can apply for money whether it's 500 quid or 5 million quid to kind of make things better yeah, that's that's amazing. And I, uh, so what what do you think the future holds for you? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I've only been in my current role a couple of years, so I'm not planning to move on just yet. I think within the world of grant making, there are lots of discussions about how you make grant making something that's easier. I think one of the big fears people have when they apply for funding, you have to fill in a lot of forms. The forms can be really badly designed. You know, they're not necessarily written or explained in a way that's very accessible. I think there's often conversations about do, do the people who are really good at writing those forms get the money, even if their ideas aren't that great? And therefore, if you've got a really good idea, but you're not so good at getting it across, do you kind of lose out? So there's lots of discussions about how you make things a lot fairer, a lot more accessible, how grant makers recognize the power they have um, and the privilege they have, because you don't really want a parent-child relationship. You kind of want to have a peer relationship with the organizations you're supporting. So mm. there's lots of discussions about that going on, which I think are really, really timely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, it's a really valid point because, you know, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of local charities particularly are, are powered by volunteers who are amazing hardworking people but they've never necessarily had to uh, spend years honing the sort of skill set that you would typically need yeah. to master a grant application that that's exactly it and for some of them you know they're working they might have a day job and then they're doing the charity stuff in the evening mm. they're they're probably all volunteers they might not have any paid staff at all and if they do have paid staff they might not be fundraisers so you know it, it's about recognizing that when you're a grant giver and, and having real empathy for the situation that people are in and giving them as much support as you can so that they can articulate what they need in the best possible way yeah and you know i, I think the national lottery is uh, as has been for what the best of 30 years now a prime example of how uh, a charity can kind of leverage the the power of media to really get the most out of what it does. I mean, the lottery has grown into an organisation that gives what tens, maybe hundreds of millions a year to, to charity. Yeah. And, and nowadays, even though we're, we're 30 years from when National Lottery first started, you know, they're still kind of the, the biggest player in, in kind of in that space. So, but how do you think kind of the future with new technology and new ways of fundraising and particularly now with a lot of like crowdfunding platforms that exist yeah how do you think that relationship is changed between sort of charities and and the people that, that fund them yeah i think that is a really good question and, and there are lots of funders who are looking about looking at how they use some of that technology in their grant making so um 
could somebody make their application for funding using a short film rather than filling in an application form? You know, lots of grant funders have been experimenting with that work. Some do it really well. Um, so it's really thinking about the best way of using technology like that. And I think as well in the world of fundraising, uh, there's lots of very clever fundraising which uses technology like that, not just in terms of GoFundMe and online stuff like that, like Kickstarter and others, but also, um, you know, you've seen a lot in the video games community about how they use video games to raise money and things like that. So th there's, I think there's huge innovations to be found uh, in all of that. And even people looking at things like, you know, cryptocurrency and how that works uh, in terms of fundraising, in terms of could you conceivably pay a charity their grant funding in that way? I, I have no idea to the answer to that, but I know lots of people <laughs> Yeah, and I think 99% of people still have no idea what cryptocurrency even is. Yeah, quite right. I have no clue at all. Well, the same with <laughs> NFTs. I have no idea what an NFT is. Oh, yeah, don't get me started on NFTs. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling old because all these new things know, are right? coming up and I'm like, like, don't get me started. Just let me stick with what <laughs> I know. So if your life was a movie, who would play you? Yeah, this is another one I thought long and hard about because... I really like Cary Grant films and you kind of look at those films and again it must be all about the suit but you know you look at those films these well-dressed guys and you think yeah that could be me right that could be me <laughs> uh, he's too short um you know I'm six foot five so uh, it doesn't really come across on zoom my height but uh Cary Grant would definitely be too short um <laughs> so I probably would be somebody like Christopher Lee because he's the same height as me uh and he always in many films he plays somebody who's like easily irritable which is another of my traits unfortunately so I think you'd have that kind of slightly grumpy <laughs> slightly grumpy uh, exterior quite down I, I think he'd, he'd do very well so that kind of uptight Englishman I think he'd be very good at yeah. although I did I did last year dress up as David Niven uh, no I, I can really I can really see you like being a, <laughs> a spot on David Niven that's well that's... thank you very much yeah, throw a little moustache and you'll be, you're there. If only I could. No, but that was for, um, that was for a tweet along with, uh, there's a Twitter account called The Film Crowd and they mm. do tweet alongs a couple of times a week and it's run by these really great people and they're a lot of fun. And so I think uh, it must have been Death on the Nile was on iPlayer and we sort of, various people dressed up for it, including myself, and then we tweeted along to the film. But most yeah. of the tweet along was just laughing at what we were all wearing rather than... <laughs> about the film so let's do david niven then as a as a, as that answer i i think that's that's a great shout what 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 part of your life do you imagine being the most uh, cinematic i guess oh god that's an excellent question what part of my life would be the most cinematic i guess when i was up until about the age of seven or eight i lived overseas so i mean i guess that would be an interesting kind of film maybe maybe coming back to the UK and kind of experiencing it for the first time at that age was a bit of a culture shock so maybe that would make a great kind of uh coming of age film Christopher Lee would be too tall by that point though for that film. So <laughs> I don't know who but yeah yeah you'd have to to work some uh, CGI magic I think to, uh, <laughs> to make that one work <laughs> but talking of childhood uh what is your most nostalgic film yeah, so as I just said, you know, up until the age of about seven, we lived overseas. So I'd never really been to the cinema. Uh, and my parents used to rent films up until that point from like a local video shop that had English language films. And they'd come on Betamax, which shows you how horribly old I am. 
but all the films, I mean, and this was like 1985, something like that, but all of the films that they would rent were by then at least 10 years old, if not 15 or 20. So they were the blockbusters of yesteryear. So it was things like the Cannonball Run films and you know the Smokey and the Bandit films. So I had a real kind of, that kind of end of term style film. Uh, I have a real love for that kind of, not love, I'd say, but you know, there's something about them which feels very homely to me. But I, I, I guess the most nostalgic film was probably one of the first films I saw in the cinema. And that was when we'd come back to live in the UK. And uh, it was Tim Burton's Batman film, the first one he did. I became utterly obsessed with it. <laughs> I mean, completely obsessed with it. I used to build stuff out of Lego. Um, I worked in a newsagent as a paperboy. And whenever I get my, <laughs> like the two pounds, whatever it is you're paid, I buy all the magazines and the tie-in comics in that newsagent that had Batman on it to kind of just become slight. I mean, it was, that's capitalism for you. I mean, he did all right in the newsagent, but I just became utterly obsessed with that Batman film. Uh, and it was, yeah, the first film I think my dad took me to the cinema to see, and I remember he fell asleep, so how engaged he was. And I probably spent the rest of the car journey on the way home telling him everything that happened, like over <laughs> and over again. And I still remember it now, just being utterly blown away by the whole experience. So, um, what what are your thoughts? Being so um, fond of the original Batman, uh, what what are your thoughts on the darker uh, like remakes? Yeah, because of course we've got another one coming this this year, and mm. I kind of think we're going to get are we going to get another dark and gritty Batman of him? You know, sepia tinted Gotham skylines with him looking really moody for two hours. It, it looks exactly like that's what it's going to be, right? Another slow motion origin scene of his parents being, you know, gunned down in Crime Alley. You kind of think maybe we could just go back to the kind of pop art 1966 Batman and have a really colourful, happy one for a change. I, I it, does, it does kind of feel like it's, you know, the gritty, realistic Batman. OK, I think that's been done now. I, I, is it me, though, or does it feel like like DC? Because Marvel is kind of finding its its style in being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit more fun, DC are, tr are trying to deliberately be something different. So they're just going way too far the other way and being really dark and moody. I think you're right. They're trying to make us all feel like we have to suffer for our art. Uh, <laughs> and I, it's a shame that DC have never really quite got into the groove with the films, because I do think the comics and the original comics personally are better than the kind of the Marvel stuff. But I think Marvel have really, you know, they've just, they've just owned it with the films in the way that DC haven't quite ever hit. You know, there's been some good ones. I think uh, Shazam was good. And I think the, the Wonder Woman films were very good, but you know, as a set, they don't really hang together very well at all. Unlike Marvel, where it really feels like a kind of a curated collection. Yeah, definitely. I bet DC was sort of rubbing their hands back in like 2007 because, uh, you know, they had Superman and they had Batman and they, you yeah, know, yeah. They, they were very much like the, probably I would say the two most well-known superheroes. And then Marvel was saying, no, no, we're going to launch a new franchise and we're going to kick it off with Iron Man. DC were probably <laughs> thinking, yeah, all right, you carry on with that. Yeah, you can imagine the DC executives kind of being like, oh my God, this is going to fail. <laughs> Goodbye then, Marvel. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and, and, and 10 years later, um, look who's laughing. I know, I know, I know. And you end up with all those campaigns to re-release films that have already been out in different edits. And it's, mm. yeah, it, it feels really torturous. Yeah, but it would be nice to see DC go back to the sort of style that they delivered with um, with the original Batman. Because as you say, with films like Shazam, 
they were a bit more fun and it it was really good yeah it was a really enjoyable film and i think yeah. the same for the wonder Woman films they just felt like films that really understood what the the property was about and everyone was having a good time making it and they just kind of worked uh, i think dc have spent too much time trying to build the big universe, which Marvel kind of have built as they've gone along to some degree. Yeah. You know, they've got kind of, they've got the, the track record of doing it. And I think DC have just kind of looked at the end product and tried to replicate that rather mm. than building something unique of their own. Yeah, and I don't think it helps that they, they have a changing cast as well. Like they've got three different Jokers. They've got like <laughs> now two different um, Batmans. They've got Superman changing. It's just like, there's no consistency there. Whereas Marvel, they locked in like Robert Downey Jr. and they locked in um, Chris Evans and um, Chris Hemsworth. And, you know, so they became the faces of the franchise. And there was that element of consistency over a whole yeah. decade. Yeah, I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, whereas people, you know, picking up on the DC stuff, it's, it's hard to know what you're watching sometimes. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I guess that, that takes us sort of nicely onto the last question, which is, uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Yeah, which uh, weirdly is another superhero film and is one of the ones we've just been talking about, which is Superman 3, which in my opinion, in my opinion, and this is a hill I will die on, is the best of all the Superman films. And I know there'll be people screaming probably now at the podcast that I've just committed some kind of heresy against the first two films. I'm, I'm going to scream this at you right now because Superman 2 is surely the best of the, of the franchise. No way. I really like Superman 2. I really, I like it more than Superman. And I think the first kind of hour of it is great. The build-up, the villains, uh, it all works really, really well. The kind of Superman becoming human. I think that's terrific. I think it all falls apart towards the end because you have these almighty powerful villains and they can't quite realise effectively on screen mm. their kind of command. And you have Gene Hackman popping up to distract them to make sure they don't quite use their superpowers. And it just, for me, it doesn't quite gel very well. Whereas Superman 3, which I completely get, is a bit of a mess and is tonally all over the place. You know, you've got slapstick comedy at the end. You've got body horror. No, you've got slapstick comedy at the beginning. And then at the end, you've got body horror stuff. And it's it's weird. It's just you would never put those two things together. Yeah. But I just I just enjoy it. And I think Christopher Reeve, particularly when he becomes evil Superman, and the scene in the um, in the car crushing yard, I think he's exceptional. I think it's his best best Superman performance. I mean, I, I guess uh, we'll have to agree to disagree on the best Superman film <laughs> in the franchise. Um, but I guess that's why it's a guilty pleasure. But you, you would have thought though that Spider Man would have taken a hint from Superman three and thought if we're going to do the kind of evil version, the kind of evil twin narrative they did in Spider Man three. Um, Oh. Maybe just watch Superman 3 and just, just just see how difficult that is. Yeah, I wonder if when they were filming that and they were doing the dance routine stuff, I wonder if anyone kind of looked at the rushes and went, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> I, I think they were, they, were too, they were too deep at that point. They had to just go I, with it. I think it was like all in. Yeah. Just go for it. Come on, Toby. Get, hit those dance routines out of the park. Yeah, yeah that, I, can't, I, don't, I don't know what they were thinking with that one. But... Um, yeah, Superman 3. At least you didn't say Superman 4. That was the... No, uh... I, I, yeah, I think you would have ended the Zoom call right then. I think you could have you could have literally said, right, we're not using this. Yeah, but no, I... <laughs> Never podcast again. I think what we can probably agree on is that that original Superman franchise set the standard 
for superhero movies. I think it did. Mm. I think very much. And I think they they work, certainly the first three, I think work very well as a trilogy. And I think it was it was at that dawn, sort of dawn of special effects when they could, you know, really kind of make people go, oh, wow, okay, so you can do this. Yeah. I think up until that point, things had never quite worked right. And at the same time, Star Wars was kicking off. So I think you can really see this kind of escalation between the different franchises to be the best. And I think, you know, blockbuster films are really coming into their own at that point. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree that the, the, that first Superman particularly really made people realise that a superhero film could be a, a very serious film. It didn't have to be all kind of glitzy costumes and, you know, foolishness. It could be something with a real heart to it. Yeah. And, but I think cinema fans, and particularly superhero movie fans, are really spoiled nowadays because particularly, in, I think in both of our times, you know, right up until the, the 21st century, like there was, there was this like big kind of renaissance in special effects. So all you had to do was put the latest technology at the screen and like put loads of it in there. And we were just blown away. Nowadays, yeah. you can't just like, you can't throw special effects at a screen and expect people to come. You've got to have story. And yeah, which I think some of those original, like the first Superman, you know, the scene at the end when he screams because Lois is dead. I mean, spoilers, sorry if you've not seen it. But that's really affecting. I mean, it's just like a really shocking scene in the way that they cut all the incidental music out and it's just silent for like a minute. And yeah. It's, it's, and the way she kind of drowns in the car in the gravel, it's, it's a really shocking moment. And I think they're trying to get back now to that mix of special effects but also a good story and a good heart because i think there was a point like you say where superhero movies were just cgi yeah and some of those have dated horribly yeah um, so i think yeah they're definitely getting back to kind of thinking about just how you tell a really really cracking story yeah absolutely and i think just to to put a final note on that if you want an example of how superhero movies really lost their way and got carried away with special effects watch the opening title sequence of uh, i think it was x2 the the original x-men sequel and it's so 90s it's so dated it is the one of the most cringeworthy sequences i've seen in a superhero movie and it just yeah it's it's just awful it's just awful <laughs> So that would be your awful film, by the I, I think it would, yeah. I have a few, but I think specifically the, the opening titles to, to X-Men 2 is, is, is just awful. Uh, thank you, Stuart, for your choices. Uh, it's uh, an amazing set of answers uh, and a bit of a throwback. Before I let you go, uh, do remind everyone uh, where they can uh, connect with you. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter, at Stuart Hobley. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> I'm not on any other... <laughs> Nice and simple. Um, but it's been yeah. an absolute uh, pleasure having you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. And hopefully we can uh, get you back sometime in the future. Yeah, we'll have to watch the Batman film together and really kind of like mum grumble about the dark and moodiness. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I'll, I'll lock you in to that. We'll do a Batman special at some point in the future. Great. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Friday Film Club. I do hope you enjoyed it. And of course, you can listen back to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And remember as well to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at The Fry Film Club. We will, of course, post links to all of our guest info in the show notes. So look out for that as well. Thanks for listening.